pray all of these things in your son's name. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Ash. It's good to be here again. As, uh, as Ash said, uh, I'm married to Claudia, and my name's Michael. Uh, I'm sometimes referred to as Claudia's husband. So if you can't remember my name, you can call me that. That's often what happens. Um, uh, as she said, I, I, live in, I live here in Boulder, down in South Boulder, not too far from the Brockets, I think, if you're still in South Boulder. And we were actually involved, I got involved in Bridges, which was kind of a singles group from 15 years ago or something. I don't even know how long ago that was. And uh, it was a very, very, you know, as we get into this work, there were some, there were some very good characteristics of that group that in, in, in the easiest way to say it is it very much functioned like a family. And a lot of these things we're going to do is, is going to be building this kind of family bonding that is really one of the, the most powerful drivers of our character, more so than just about any other factor in our brain. It looks to the people we're bonded to and we love and who we consider like family, whether it's blood family or spiritual family. And so Bridges for me was very much like that, and I have a lot of friends from that group to this day, and they'll be my friends till the day I die. And that's a very good, uh, that's a very good characteristic of, of a group that you're looking for. Um, so I've been working on the curriculum for the small groups, and then a lot of times at our time here, I can fill you in in some more of the scriptures and more of the, uh, the theory behind it, but I'm not going to get too geeky, but enough to give you some interest because, uh, well, you, I'll, I'll talk about that in a while, so, but we're going we're gonna to talk basically what, you know, what the church calls discipleship, but really what we're calling how do people change. That's what, that's what we're going to look at. Um, and I like questions during our time together, so feel free to interrupt, feel, feel free to shoot your hand up. I'll ask for questions periodically, but if something comes up that you think you want to ask, just raise your hand. I like the interactive rather than me being just a talking head up here, okay? So feel free. I give you permission right now. Um, and we're going to do some theory, but we're also always going to do some practice here. You get to try out some of these new kind of practices that are really designed to form our character and, our, and our, build our maturity. And we're even going to talk about that. What is character and maturity, right? Um, and, and we're going to bring some of the brain and how, you know, most of us here, and I'm fine if you have a problem with this and don't, and don't agree, but most of us, I think, here would, would agree that, that our brain was designed by God. So the fingerprints of Jesus are in our brains and the wiring and the way he formed us. And character change, which is the main task of the church, is um, very much a, 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 a right brain, and we're going to look at this. It's very much a, a brain-centered um, task, and we're starting to learn actually how that works. And so it's going to be interesting to see for you, it was for me when I first learned it, how God actually designed us to grow in our character and who we are on the inside. And so we'll be looking at maturity and character. Uh, it may surprise you that those two things are not the same thing. And so by the end of this year, you will know the difference between maturity and character, but they're both absolutely necessary for us to be transformed into the image of Jesus, which is what this is all about. And you may, if you're like me, uh, realize that we don't grow how we've been told, even in the church. Um, you might be surprised by this. Um, and so I'd like to tell a bit of my story. Ash uh, shared some of it. Um, but I was involved um, at Flatirons Community Church. I was uh, an elder for about 10 years, and I went on a really intense men's Bible study, or men's kind of inner healing and group thing uh, in Texas with the lead pastor. 
And with the men's pastor, the three of us went. You know, it was one of these kind of intense things, three days long. And after we got back from that, the, the, those two pastors kept, started recruiting me and said, why would you not come do this with us here at Flatirons? And the, come do this, the this they're talking about is this kind of disciple change, discipleship change, transformation, how do we change, and, and get that into our church. And so that's always been something that's near to dear to me. And so I started, and uh, you know, my wife and I prayed about it, and, uh, and I went and talked to the pastor and said, you know, you've, you're recruiting me for this, but you've actually not told me exactly what you want me to do. And he, he answered, well, what do you want to do? And I said, you know, those people that were baptized last week, I wonder, what are we doing to help them grow in their knowledge of Jesus and as believers and followers of him? You know, what's our plan to make them lifelong disciples of Jesus? You know, because we're, we were good at getting people in the door and getting them to know Jesus and become saved, but we didn't have a very good plan from that point on, honestly. So I said, what about that? And he says, okay, you're hired. Go do it. And so I just started, you know, doing things. I just started trying all sorts of stuff. Um, I, uh, one of the things I did is I wrote a book called uh, A Basic Training for walking with Jesus, and it's like the, a, a really easy, readable book for the, the basics of the Christian faith. And, and I was really writing that book to myself because I didn't, I didn't grow up in a Christian family. I could probably count on one hand the times I went to church before, like before my college years, let's say. And uh, the only time I went to church is when I would visit my grandmother in Nebraska because she would make me. And so... Um, so I didn't have any religious background, but you know, I'd say with senior year of high school, first year of college, I started having some philosophical kind of metaphysical questions and confusion about what is the meaning of life? You know, what is all this? You know, if I, I was studying a science degree in engineering, and so if I, the explanation given there is that we, some, we kind of evolved out of pond scum through lightning strikes and millions of years, and that's kind of it. But I thought, if, if that's true, then, li- then this life doesn't really have any meaning, or there's no direction, there's no path or plan, other than what we try to just make up. But when I looked around at life, it didn't seem like anyone was living life as though it had no meaning, right? And so I would just scratch my head, and I remember late night talks in our freshman year here at CU in the dorm room, you know, you have getting these philosophical conversations late at night, about the meaning of life, and I remember it seemed to me that everyone had a, an, uh, an opinion about what the meaning of life was. And if I was honest, all I could say is, I do not know. And that bothered me. That question bothered me. And uh, so that was my freshman year. During the summer after my freshman year, I moved back home. I'm from Denver. Moved home for the summer to get a job, and so I was working that job, and in the middle of that summer, one night, I could not fall asleep. And so finally, after trying and trying and trying, I got out of bed, and I walked upstairs in our, in our, our home, my parents' home, and they had a big whole wall that was a bookshelf just from the floor all the way up to the ceiling, filled with books, and I thought, I'll find a book that'll help me fall asleep, that'll bring some slumber to my eyelids. And so I'm looking at this bookshelf and scanning it and scanning it, and I see a Bible. And I think, you know, every time I went to church with my grandmother in Nebraska, it was really boring. 
And so I bet that Bible is a boring book, so I'm going to read it to help me fall asleep. So I grabbed the Bible, walked downstairs into my bedroom, sat down in bed, and I just cracked it open randomly, and it said, New Testament of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And my first thought is, what's new about this? Matter of fact, it seems pretty old to me, and why would they call it new? And so I turned the page and I started reading Matthew, right? First book of the New Testament. And one of the first things I read was uh, this guy had this son who had this son who had these 12 sons who had the, begot these other sons, and it went on and on. And I thought, wow, this is even more boring than I thought it was. <laughs> but thankfully, I didn't give up because once I waded through the genealogies, it started talking about Jesus. And I had no idea the New Testament was about Jesus. Even though it was in the title, I had no idea. And I thought, I've always been interested in Jesus and I don't know anything about him. So I just started reading Matthew and I probably that night read five chapters, six chapters, which would put me in somewhere in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, right? And it's hard to explain what happened, but God, I felt God speaking to me, but without saying any words. Which, first of all, that was weird for me. I've never had that happen. Has anybody had that happen before? I hadn't. I'm like, what is, what is going on here? But what I sense from God is, is that I have heard this question of yours about the meaning of life, and you'll find the answer to this question in this person you're reading about, my son, Jesus Christ. And for me, having never having gone for church, it was like an explosion. I was like, whoa. And I remember turning over on my knees in bed, and praying and thanking God for showing me the purpose of life. As far as I can tell, that's the first time I ever really prayed. And the next day, I got up in the morning. I had a, I had a, a summer job in downtown Denver delivering blueprints from a reproduction shop to all the oil companies. So I'd, I'd like go in and out of the traffic in, the, in my bicycle. I'd deliver them on bicycle all day long, and that next day, it was like I was riding my bicycle 10 feet off the seat of my bike. Like I was in this spiritual euphoria, and pardon my language, but I'd only been Christian seven hours, so I, when, I, when, I, when I'm having these feelings, I said, what the hell just happened to me? Because I had no idea. I hadn't talked to anybody about it. Hadn't gone to church. And the rest of that summer, I just started reading, kept, kept reading the New Testament. So every night I read a couple more chapters, and I read through... I was probably mostly through Matthew by the time I went back to college for my sophomore year. And then I got to my dorm room, sat down, and was unpacking, and my roommate Steve Lowe came into the room. He's my friend from my freshman year. We'd partied together, we got drunk a lot together. He came in and set his bags down and said, Michael, I'm not sure I'm gonna live with you this year. And I said, why, Steve, what's up? And he goes, well, Last year I partied with you, but I'm a Christian, and over the summer I've kind of rededicated my life, and I'm not going to party with you anymore. I'm, I'm done with that life. I'm over it. And as soon as he said, I'm a, I'm a Christian, I ignored everything else he said and waited for him to stop talking. And as soon as he stopped talking, I said, I'm a Christian too. And if you could see the look on Steve's face when I said that, those were literally the last words in the universe he ever thought would come out of my mouth in that moment. And Steve and I sat down and talked for like two hours. He'd grown up in church and knew a lot more than I did. I'd been reading the book of Matthew on my own, not probably understanding half of what I read. And um, 
And so he answered a bunch of questions, and then afterwards he said a very interesting thing. He said, let's get involved in a Christian group. And I had no idea what a Christian group was, but we got involved in one, and, uh, and it became such a life-giving community to me, and I started experiencing so many changes in my life that the first time I went back home after that summer and going back up to school was for Thanksgiving in November. So this is what, like three months? And I was actually nervous of going back home because I felt I have changed so much in these three months that I feel like I'm a different person and my parents are not even going to recognize me. And that is what we call transformation. That is transformation. So when I found myself as a pastor of discipleship many years later, um, that was my question. How do people change? And why do we see change so spectacularly and fast sometimes, and common sometimes, and other times it seems so slow and so resistant, right? And so those are the things I, rescued, I wrestled with as a pastor. And so I, I, you know, I wrote the book uh, on, on uh, basic training for young Christians. I also did a five-week training in spiritual disciplines that I took over 800 people through. And I did some other things as well, and the results were, were really spectacular. Like, people would come to me and say, I think when, once this five-week five training, a man came up to me afterwards and, and said, I think you, this training you put me through has saved our marriage. Now, between you and me, I didn't design it to save anybody's marriage. I designed it to teach them some spiritual disciplines. But we kept hearing these things um, sometimes. But other times, it seems like the things I was doing didn't work at all. And so I, as a pastor of spiritual formation or discipleship, I kept running into that word sometimes, that sometimes these Christian practices we did worked really, really well, and sometimes they didn't seem to work at all. Or they worked for some people and they didn't work for others. Or they worked for some people sometimes and other times of life or other kinds of problems, they didn't seem to work for those kinds of problems. And so I often found myself in my office at church sitting down, looking at my dry erase board, scratching my head, and saying, I don't think I know how people change. And I don't think I know, at least I think I'm missing big pieces of this puzzle. Because I was able to write my own job description, and I, I picked a, a, a scripture, it's the next slide, if you move slides, Matthew 28 kind of gives you the task that's a little bit small, you may not be able to see it, so I'll read it to you. These are the, basically the last words Jesus gave his church before he left earth in physical form and kind of handed the keys of the church over to them. You know, it's kind of like if you have a teenager watching your house when you're about to go on vacation for the summer, and there's like one last thing you tell them, like, do not lose the keys and don't forget to feed the cat and the dog or something, right? Last things, that you, we don't want to come home to a dead dog. Well, Jesus is handing the keys over, and these are kind of the last things he says, and he says, all authority... In heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. So again, this is what I saw as my job description as a pastor of spiritual formation. Making disciples then, he says, involves baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So that's kind of, you know, what's underlined there. I don't know if you can see it's underlined, but teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So my question is this, how do we do that? How do you teach a person to obey everything Jesus commanded you? How do I teach myself that? 
If I was honest, I felt I didn't really know the answer to that question. Nonetheless, it was my job description. And then Paul restates this, the, the Great Commission, this is called. He restates it in Ephesians, which is the next slide. He kind of puts it in different words. He said, So Christ himself gave the apostles, prophets, and evangelists, and the pastors and the teachers to equip the people for works of service and the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become what? Mature. Attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of God. Again, teaching people to obey everything Jesus commanded us In other words, aligning every part of our life up with what Jesus taught and what he said and what he showed in his own life and and moving our people into maturity. That was my job description. But more and more, I found myself wondering, realizing that I I knew what I needed to do, but I didn't know how. How was the question that I had now. Um, Do I just give people a list of do's and don'ts? Does that help them line their life up with Jesus? I found that most of the time that actually didn't help at all. Just telling them the, the information. Um, even in my own life, it's not just these people out there I'm trying to fix. In my own life, there were areas of my life that seemed to be stubborn to change and resistant. And I didn't know, in the usual Christian prescriptions that had actually caused lots of life change for me in other times of life and other situations, the kinds of problems, there are other problems in my life that they didn't seem to touch. And why was that? So I very quickly started having a lot more questions than answers. You ever been in that situation where you start having more questions than answers? Um, so I, I often would see, I would see people doing very good deeds and very good works, but not necessarily with very good character. Um, and so I had these questions, and here's some of the questions I had. Why do some non-Christians I know seem to treat people better than some Christians I know? Why is that? Why does that happen sometimes? Or why do we see some Christian leaders and even pastors acting in ways that doesn't look like Jesus at all? Right? You don't have to read the newspaper very often to find a story about once a month about some complete blow-up of a church. Right? Why do we keep seeing that over and over again? Um, and again, the more general question I had, too, is how do people change? This is the one that covers everything. How do you even define what character is, and how do we change it? And why don't we see more radical character change in our church and in churches around our country and the world? Okay? So I was marinating in these questions when I got a call from a man named Bob who said uh, that he'd visited our church and wanted to get together with lunch for me. He went to another church down in Denver, but he wanted to ask me some questions. So I sat down to lunch with this stranger, and he said, "Um, I've been a lifelong friend of Dallas Willard. Dallas Willard's kind of one of the discipleship experts that's written many, many books on discipleship and and how we change. And, uh, And he says, one of the things Dallas would complain about sometimes to me secretly Dallas would say, you know, it seems like a lot of people are reading my books, but very few churches are actually doing it. And then Bob leaned over the table and looked at me and it says, and Michael, it seems like you're actually doing it. Normally, I would take that as a compliment. But I was stewing in these questions and I said, yeah, Bob, but, and I started vomiting all my questions on him, the ones I just vomited on you all, right? 
And Bob very calmly said, well, you know, Michael, why don't we start meeting once a month? And, uh, and I pulled another pastor friend of mine into this, and let's start just unpacking discipleship and reading books and trying to figure out why, how do people change and why don't we see more radical life change and character transformation in our churches. And so we just started meeting and having lunch once a month and write, reading books and studying topics, having good discussions. And it was about six months into these lunches where Bob said an interesting thing. He said, um, I think one of the things about discipleship, he said, that we've been ignoring is, is uh, how God designed our brains and how that affects how, how our character changes. And Bob's like 85 years old, and honestly, I, this, that didn't make any sense to me, so I thought maybe he had a senior moment or something, so I kind of ignored him. Thankfully, a month later, we're having our same lunch and our same discussion, and Bob says, you know, I still think we're, we're ignoring the neuroscience angle of how God designed us to change our character. And I said, Bob, I have no idea what you're talking about. What do you mean, the neuroscience angle of discipleship? He got this little smile on his face, and he said, well, why don't I invite my friend Jim Wilder to our lunch next month, because I think he can explain it better than I can. And so we met the following month and sat down, the three of us, with this stranger, Jim Wilder. And for some reason, Jim turned to me and said, so Michael, what would you like us to talk about during this time together? And I said, I kind of vomited my, my questions on him again, like, I don't know how people change. You know, how, what is character? How do we change it? Why does it, always, it seem to not work very well, and sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. And then he said something that was going to pique my interest. He said, Michael, I think it might help you to understand a little bit about the way the brain was designed to change character in order to, under to understand the answers to these questions. Now, I had that, at that point, I'd been a Christian over 30 years. I had been a missionary in Argentina. I'd been to seminary. I'd been a, an elder for 10 years, a pastor for four years. And no one in my life had ever said anything like that to me about how the brain, what the, what the role of the brain plays in our discipleship and how we change. And so that was the beginning of a whole new area of my life that that really essentially over a period of time answered very deeply and very significantly the questions that I had about how people change. And like I said, it, it often was not the way I thought. Okay? And so that's what we're going to be delving into this year in the small group curriculum and in our time together. So I'm just kind of giving you a little bit of background to this. Okay? So when he said that question, I said, well, you know, how does the brain actually work? And he reached down into his briefcase and pulled out a plastic brain. He unhooked the two sides, and he said, the brain that Jesus designed, everything that you can sense in your surrounding, like this little humming noise, the cool air I feel from the air conditioning, the bright light over here, as well as the red light over there, you know, even the perfume of the person sitting next to all the ways we can sense our, our surroundings, they go into nerves that are like sensors and wires, and they eventually end up in the back right of our brain. So take your finger and put it on the back right part of your brain. And all of the ways we can interpret our outside environment travel from the back, follow your finger up on the right side of your brain to right about in front of your eye. So they go back to right in front of your eye. It crosses over behind your eye and then travels front to back on the left side of your brain. When he told me this, I thought, I'd never, nobody's ever told me that. Did anybody, anybody know that before coming in here today? 
Maybe if you've read the book, you have. But yeah, some of you, if you studied neuroscience or if you're a doctor, you probably have. But it's not in the popular culture. I'd never heard that in my life. And I even studied kind of a science, non-medical, but science degree. And then he started to show us how basically the, the, the main processor of the brain works, like how, this, how our brain works on all of this data, that, all this stuff that's coming in to teach us, okay? Next slide. And so he said, the brain, the right, we really kind of had two brains. They're connected together and work in harmony, but they have a very different focus, a very different focus of work, the right and the left. The right brain is our, what we call our relational brain. It really processes the relational environment that surrounds us. Um, it has to do with who are our deepest, deepest attachments. Who here knows me? Whose face is lighting up when they see me? And also, is this, is this a good environment or I'm in danger? There's an instantaneous danger assessment. Or is this scary or is this good? Also, this thing called attunement is in our right brain. A very, very important thing for character change. What do you think attunement is? It's when I, not when I can tell what's going on inside of you. Even without words going on. Where I can read that you're going in, like you're sad, or you're angry, or you're sleepy, or you're happy and excited. Tuning, is, attuning means we're, we're attuned to the inside emotions, inside states of other people. That's incredibly important for character change, believe it or not. When we attune to each other, it puts our brain in a state that's very, very healthy. And our identities, both individual, what kind, of, who, what kind of person am I, and group identity, which what kind, of, what kind of a people are we? Our brain is actually, the right brain is looping six times a second, processing, what do my people do in this situation? What is it like our, us, our people, to act in this other situation? So our group identity, who we are as a people, is very strongly influential in our character. Anybody knew that? If you didn't read the book already, I'd, I'd never heard of group identity in my life, but our brain is very much designed around group identity. That was completely new to me. So our right brain is our, like our relational brain, and it's the more powerful side of the two sides. It loops six times a second. The left brain loops five times a second, so it's always behind, kind of following around. And, and, and the left brain is really our uh, rational brain. The left brain really is a lot of what we think the brain is in popular culture. It's thinking, it's words, it's explanations. It's uh, coming up with stories that explain our reality, solving problems, all this kind of stuff. Logic. That's, we, I, I always thought that was just the brain, right? Anybody f think that? But it's really mostly the, the left brain is dominant for those things and the right brain is dominant for the relational emotional surroundings. And the right brain is is much faster. So it knows things faster than we can actually put words to it. Have you ever walked into a room and you've just felt something is off here, but you have no idea what? What probably has happened is your right brain has picked something up, but your left brain hasn't yet caught up and understood or put, been able to put words to it. And that's actually quite common. Um, so here's the interesting thing, though. Jim Wilder said, and... Um, Character change, character formation is primarily a right brain dominant exercise practice. It really needs to have a full brain, but, but it's dominant in the right brain. 
But the church over the last 500 years has slowly gravitated towards having a Christianity that's been largely put into our left brain. Where it's about conscious thoughts, what we believe, which those things are important. Um, about words, teaching, all that kind of stuff. Um, and those are absolutely crucial to our, our discipleship, but with, without the right brain, emotional and relational skills, left, the left brain has a hard time getting traction. And that's sometimes why a lot of the Christian practices we do work sometimes that don't other times. A lot of times it has to do with our right brain, which we don't even know in, in the Christian church what, it, what's it, what it's for and what it's doing. Okay? And so this is kind of like, a, for me, it was like a path into unexplored territory. And uh, my wife and I have, have commented that, that we've changed more in the last four, four or five years than we have in the previous 20 since learning this and doing these new kinds of practices. And, uh, and we can't think, you know, of anything more excited, exciting to share with people. So I'm, that's why I'm really excited to be here. Um, but I sense we need to pray. Let's, this is kind of some new territory. I was often saturated when I would learn this new stuff because I'd never even heard these words before. And so let's pray that God would put us in a state where we can absorb what he wants us to absorb, whether it's all of it or a little bit. Um, so let's, uh, let's join ourselves, each other in prayer for a moment. So our Father, um, we're so thankful that we get to be here together and, uh, and delve into how you created us uh, to be conformed to the image of your Son. Uh, and many of us here today, or this evening, um, we, we feel like we're taking a trip into uncharted territory, uncharted waters, but I thank you that these waters are not uncharted to you that you know you're where you're taking us. And so we pray that you would guide us this evening and this, this year. Uh, be our shepherd this year as we work together on our hearts and on our souls and on our maturity and our character so that we may display more and more the wonderful and beautiful character of your son and even specifically that we're able to love people more like Jesus loved. That we would become a people who love others like Jesus loved us. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Okay, we're going to do a quick practice, a couple minutes, just kind of a meditative practice. Uh, think of an area of your own character that's been kind of stubborn or maybe resistant to the usual Christian answers or prescriptions, um, and talk to God. We're just, I'm just going to give you maybe two minutes, two or three minutes, and just talk to God and ask him to bring an area to mind if something doesn't come to mind, and ask him to, uh, to show you the way forward in this year. Maybe to give you new eyes on this subject for this area of your life. And to help you see it more and more from his perspective. And uh, even to put some more people, in, new people into your life who might be able to, uh, to show you how life is lived as a picture of them. Um, so I'll give you a couple minutes and then we will continue.
Okay. Go to the next slide. So, when, when Jim was explaining how the brain works and how, how, uh, how our characters formed, he said one, a very interesting thing to me. He said, the, the brain desires one thing more than any other, any other thing. The brain is constantly looking for this, and it functions almost like a gas tank that gives us energy for everything else we do. And that thing is called joy. But really, the better term is relational joy, and we'll talk about why that's a better term, okay? So let's go to the next slide. So let's dwell on these beautiful faces for a minute. Just look at them and just absorb both of them. So what do you feel as you just kind of absorb what you see on the faces of these beautiful young babies? What do you feel when you kind of receive that? What's it feel like? I feel kind of a, uh, it's almost like a, uh, a tenderness in my chest, in my stomach. Anybody else feel anything different? Yeah. Heart melting. Yeah. Peace. Yeah. Yep. So when Jim Wilder mentioned this, he said the definition, the neurological definition of joy is what I feel and oftentimes this is what I feel in my body when I can tell from your face and your eyes that you're glad to be with me right now. It's like a face of grace. When I see someone's face, or that I can tell that I'm special. From the look on your face, from the twinkle in your eye, I can tell that I'm special to you. That's the, def- that's the kind of relational joy we're talking about. It reminds me when our kids were, were small, Gina and I, our kids kind of grew up together when they were that age, and, but I remember when we had, especially infants in the house, and we'd put them to bed, to bed at night, and, uh, and Ash knows what I'm talking about firsthand right now in her life, I'm past that stage now, but we'd put them like, say, 8 o'clock, 8.30, we'd put them down to sleep, and my wife and I would go do something together, it's like our only time without kids in the house, and then later when we go to bed, let's say it's 10 or 10.30, I would tiptoe in to my young child and my son and my daughter's room and I would, I would like peer over the crib and just look at that beautiful sleeping little baby and my face I could feel was just beaming like you are so special to me. Um, that's what God feels like when he sees us. Or you can see some scriptures where it actually talks about that. But joy is mostly nonverbal. It, it is verbal in the sense that we can get joy from the tone of someone's voices, but not so much words. But it's very much our posture and our face and our eyes. Very facial. And this is the way God wired us. Interesting, huh? Um, 
How this ties into discipleship is that our character grows in the presence of joy. But when our joy levels are low, you know, we have like a joy gas tank, and when the gas tank's empty, almost nothing works for character formation. Even good Christian practices don't. It's kind of like if you have a brand new car, perfect car, and the gas tank is empty, how useful is that car to you? That's kind of like us when our joy is low, okay? Because it functions very much like a gas tank. So even good things, even like reading the Bible and praying, spiritual direction and healing, those things have a hard time getting, accessing the character building areas of our brain when joy is low, okay? But we also have to be very careful that joy is not happiness. So our, our, our character doesn't rely on us being happy because joy is different than happiness. You know, even Paul says rejoice in everything, be joyful in everything. If he's saying be happy in everything, that's almost like a, a pathological Bible verse, right? My good, very good friend just lost his wife to cancer, and we're supposed to be happy about that? Do we really think God wants us to be happy about that? But when we understand the real, the real meaning and the real definition of joy, which is that we're happy to be together, then, then joy can go with any emotion. So go to the next picture. It might surprise you that this picture is just as joyful as the previous picture of the two young infants. Why? What, what emotions are they feeling right now? Sadness. But are they happy to be together? That's a very joyful picture. Okay? Joy is not happiness. It's happy to be togetherness. And we can be happy to be together in all emotions. We can be happy to be together in our anger. Everybody who has little kids, you learn how to be happy to be, when your little kids are angry. Are you angry that you just bumped your head? Oh, that makes me angry too. Let's talk about it. That's me being hang, happy in anger and helping my child learn to be happy and joyful, I mean, in anger. Because I'm happy to be with you even though you're angry. Or even at work, if you're in a, a stressful business meeting and someone gets angry at me in the, in the meeting, and then I go to his, afterwards, I loop around to his office and say, hey, you know, you seem like you're angry with me, but our relationship is too important. Let's, work, let's talk this through. Because I really value our friendship. And I want to, if I've made you angry, I want, to, I want to work through so that our relationship and so we're good with each other. Guess what that is? Those are very joyful sentiments. Because I, I still want to be with you, even when you're angry with me. These are skills we learn. Um, as most of you know, uh, I live in, in South Boulder. And uh, one day I was working at home doing some writing for the nonprofit I, was work, I work for. And all of a sudden I heard all these sirens going off, more sirens than I've ever heard go off in my life. And I thought, wow, that must have been a bad uh, car wreck or whatever. But I kept working. And then later I checked social media and realized that our king, local King Supers, four blocks from our house, there was a shooting. And a couple days later, they released the names of the victims. And, uh, and we found out that one of the young men, uh, his name is Denny Stong, who died, was a, good, was a friend of both of my daughters from middle school and from high school. 
And as most of you know, very quickly, they put chain link fence around the entire King Supers. And then people started filling in the links of the fence with flowers and mementos of these people. And someone made 10 wooden crosses with the name of each of the victims. And there were Sharpies at the base of the cross and people would leave little notes. And I called up my daughter and said, because she and our one daughter lives here in Boulder and is going to see you, and the other one's in Arizona. They both called us up crying. And so we kind of helped them and talked about it. And, and a couple days later, I said, you know, Anna, we need to cry together. This is very sad, and we need to, we need to be sad together. And so my wife and I drove over to our daughter's apartment and picked her up, and a couple of her roommates came with us, and we went to this memorial. Have you, most of you been to the memorial? And we walked through, and the sadness, if you've been there, it was like, I don't know, brackets, if you went there, but the th- sadness is almost like thick in the air. You could breathe it. And my daughter, when she came to Denny Stong's cross, she bent down and grabbed the Sharpie, and she wrote a message to him saying, thank you for sharing that song with me in middle school. It's become one of my favorite all-time songs. And that she put the pen down and stood up and we all hugged and cried together. That is joyful in sadness. So do you get it? This is not a, you know, paste a smile on your face. Sometimes joy is happy. But sometimes joy can be very sad. It can be angry. It can be in shame. You can, have, you can be glad to be with each other in shame, in despair. Any kind of emotion we have, we can learn, and it means we're happy to be together in, these, in the good things, good times, and the bad times of life, and everything in between, okay? So joy can be happy and delightful. Joy can also be very somber. Um, and joy can be experienced in all of the big six emotions, okay? And that's one of the goals of our discipleship now, is helping people stay themselves and, and stay connected to their people and to our God in big, big emotions. And so, you know, I mentioned that, you know, when I heard this, that it's in the Bible, I actually started going back to the Bible and read through the whole Old Testament and New Testament looking for joy in the Bible, and man, did I found it every, find it everywhere, okay? So go to the next slide. Give you a couple examples. There's more in the book if you don't have it. But one of the classic ones is 2 Corinthians 4, 6, who said, it says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory, displayed where? In the face of Christ. It's the face that we see God's glory. Um, The next one, which is number 6, it's a blessing that God gave to Moses in order in his, in his other priests to bless the nation of Israel, right? So this is how God taught Moses to bless Israel. He said, the Lord bless you and keep you, and the Lord make his face shine upon you. When I read that, make his face shine upon you, I thought that is the neurological definition of joy that Alan Shore, who I don't even think is a Christian, figured, he's a professor at UCLA who discovered this, in the last 20 years even, that's his definition of joy. It's, he called it the twinkle in someone's eye that communicates that you're special. You know, he's, he's basically saying what God knew all along. And shouldn't we expect that if God designed the human brain? And then Psalm 89, it said, Blessed are those who have learned to acclaim you who walk in the light of your presence, O Lord. And I read that verse and something kind of 
tweaked me because it sounded like a joy verse. And so I looked up the Hebrew, actually used my Hebrew that I learned from Denver Seminary, believe it or not. And the literal Hebrew definition of this, or transliteration, is, is blessed are those who have learned to claim you, who walk in the light of your face. The Hebrew says face. And it got translated out. Um, and so I started seeing this pattern that the face of God is getting often translated out in some of the English translations. But it is very different. You know, our body, our minds have facial recognition circuitry looping six times a second looking for faces that are shining on us, that are communicating to me, I'm glad to be with you. You are special to me. So it's very important for us to, to sense the face of God shining on us. Remember when I shared what I did when I would see my kids in the crib? Part of our discipleship is learning to receive and sense the face of God shining on us with delight. And we can actually learn that. Many of, for many of us, that's hard. But there's things we can do that will help us learn to receive it and to, and to sense God's face shining on us. And so even in the book, I had a section in, in this chapter on joy called the neglected face of God because it got neglected in a lot of the English translations of the Bible. But it's very, very important to us because of joy. It's our gas tank. Keys, faces are very, very key. You could even say that the left brain runs at the speed of words, but our right brain runs at the speed of joy. And joy is much faster than words. It's a one-sixth of a second I can tell if you're happy to be with me or not. Interesting, huh? Our churches need to be high-joy environments where when we come in, and I would experience this with bridges. We had a, a Wednesday night meeting. I would walk into the room, and a bunch of faces would light up, and my brain would know instantly, these people are really happy I just showed up. And that's what you call a spiritual greenhouse. Now, in another type of environment where you go in and you don't, don't sense that, that's not going to be a place where transformation is going to very easily, easily happen. Because we were designed this, with this into the very circuits of our flesh. And so, of course, my question to Jim Wilder was, well, then, if joy is import, so important, well, you know, what are the, some of the ways that we can build joy in our lives with God and with each other? He didn't answer my question. Instead, he said, Michael, close your eyes. And he gave me a second to kind of to quiet myself, and then he says, think of a memory when you felt that you feel gratitude for that memory and that you also kind of felt a connection to God in it. He said the memory could be a big thing, like when your children were born or you met your wife or when you became a Christian and met Jesus for the first time, or it could be actually just a small thing, like a really good meal or a beautiful bird, or a sunset. And it could be anything in between. It doesn't even have to be a big thing. It would be big or small, just pick one. So I just sat there, and a memory came of, to me of when I was in the Colorado mountains, and I came across a ponderosa pine tree, and there was a red-tailed hawk on the top of the tree. And it's one of those situations where, like, time stood still, and I could see the feathers of the wind ruffling the feathers of its neck as it was looking around. And I said, okay, I have a memory. And Jim Wilder says, well, give the memory a title. And I called it Red-Tailed Hawk. He didn't even ask me what the memory was. He said, you know, when you go back, go back and live, relive this memory for a moment. So I thought, okay, it's kind of weird, you know, but I'll try. So I closed my eyes, and I just kind of went back in the memory, walking through the woods or looking and, and seeing that Red-Tailed Hawk and seeing the, the, rough, the, the feathers ruffling, 
and just kind of sitting and marinating in it for a moment. And then Jim said, what do you feel in your body when you relive that? And I said, I kind of feel like a lightness in my chest and in my shoulders. And he said, what, what might God be com- kind of committing or uh, impressing on you from that beautiful memory that you've not forgotten? And so I closed my eyes again. And I said, I actually think God was, in, was telling me that he was enjoying this beautiful scene together and was glad that I was enjoying it with him. And he said, that is a, is a, is a practice called nonverbal joy that actually builds our circuits in our brain and it builds our attachment to God. He said, actually, gratitude is the on-ramp to joy. One of the ways we build joy with God is with good practices of gratitude, okay? Jim Wilder wrote a book on it. If you go to the next slide, it's a quote I really like. It kind of explains how gratitude works in our brain. It says, when we keep practicing gratitude with God, our brain remembers what our connection with him was like making it easier for us to find our way back to him. So sometimes you look in, big, in distressful situations, big emotions, we kind of lose our sense of God's presence. Anybody experience that? These, these exercises of gratitude actually help us find our way to God in situations where normally we would have had a hard time finding him. And it would have felt like he wasn't with us. Now, Jesus was with us. We just lost our ability to, to, we lost our awareness of him, our awareness of his love and his, his presence. We can actually make that grow. Um, and God wants us to actively remember the good things he's done for us. If you remember in the Old Testament, what does he do to the Israelites? You know, when something big happened, he had them pile up stones, right? And then imagine, like when they crossed the Red Sea, pile of stones. And then imagine a hundred years later, I'm walking with my little daughter down the road and we pass these pile of stones and my daughter says, why are those stones there? And then I tell her the story. And telling her the story is taking her back for this wonderful thing that God has done to rescue our nation from this, this Egyptians who were trying to destroy us. And, and God was so kind to us and we've actually gone back into the memory and we're actually putting our brains in a very help, healthy, healthy space for feeling and sensing God's presence. Okay. Interesting, huh? Um, so gratitude really teaches us to return to God, to return to, to relational joy from difficult situations. And who doesn't want that? Is there anybody who doesn't want that? An ability to sense the presence of Jesus, even in areas where maybe you might lose, lose that awareness? And so in discipleship, Checking on, assessing and ri- the level and, and raising our joy level is like the first step. Because when we ra- start raising joy, everything else we do subsequently works better. Just like gasoline. The car will work better with gasoline. So, we're going to do a quick nonverbal gratitude practice, okay? I'm going to let you kind of try out this exercise that Jim shared with me. You ready? Okay, so think of a memory, again, uh, that you just feel appreciation or gratitude for, and, uh, and that you have, it can be big or small, and that you have kind of a, a sense of God's presence in the memory, or God smiling, or, or being with you in it.
And now I'm going to give you a couple minutes and just go back into that memory and just kind of be in it. Don't think about the memory. Actually be in it again and relive it. What did you feel? What was it like in it? I'll give you a few minutes. Okay, what do you feel in your body when you go back and relive that, that appreciation memory? Someone want to share something you've kind of, how did you feel it in your bodies? Tingle? Yeah. Delight. And what does delight feel like in your body? Mm, yeah, lightness, energy. Say it again. And what does a lack of anxiety feel like in your body? For me, I carry a lot of my anxiety in my shoulders. So a lot of times when I feel peaceful, my shoulders will feel easy or my jaw will be tense. If I have anxiety, my jaw will loosen. So another thing the right brain does is it gives us our sense of spatial awareness of our body. So when you can feel your body in a gratitude memory, you're actually, it's another right brain thing that's really putting your brain in a super healthy place. And that's why it's good to think about what, what, if, what does happiness feel like in my body? What does sadness feel like? What is this memory, this gratitude memory, what's it feel like? And it doesn't really matter what you feel. It's just that you're aware of your body in the memory is, a, is just a really healthy thing for us.
And uh, give your memory a couple word title in your mind, okay? And why don't some, some of you share, someone share the title of their, their gratitude memory. Like mine was Red Tail Hawk. Astonished Affirmation? Wow, that sounds like a, an exciting memory. Grandkids, that's a big one. I don't know how you can have grandkids and not have that be a grateful memory. Okay, so this is just a start. This is one of the joy building exercises that we're adding to, to our kind of our tool set that's been missing in the church for a long time, but now we're realizing the importance of it. Um, and there's also some other things, you know, when you think of our face, there's other ways we can raise the joy in our lives and in our communities and in our families. Um, I live near Tantra Park, and a lot of times my wife and I will go on a hike from there, walking through Tantra Park, and oftentimes uh, we'll go by the playground and there'll be just these beautiful little kids tromping around, toddlers swinging on things, and I look at it and I'm just amazed how beautiful they are, and then I look over at one of the parents on the, de- on the bench and they're like this. And now what we know about how God designed our brains, they're actually, it's almost like withholding food from their kids. But it's more like an emotional food. They need the delightful gazes. They need the eyes and the face of mother and father. Of grandma and grandpa. Our faces are very, very emotionally nutritious to our children. You know, these things are one of the joy reducers of our country right now. You know, what happens when you get in line at the supermarket? We used to get in line and look around, and now we're always like this. But that's actually a chance to build some joy with the cashier, just to look them in their eyes and say, hi, how's your day doing? And they can tell from the look on my face and my eyes that I'm happy that they're checking out my groceries. And you've, I've just energized them a little bit, filled up their joy tank. We need to slow down with our children and, and, and meet their eyes and let them know how happy we are that they're our children. Our spouses, we need to do the same. It's easy to come from work, hey, how was your day at work? I'm getting my eyes are all over the place instead of looking at my wife and saying, how are you? How are you doing? And let her know that, let her have my face, let her have my eyes, okay? And so, um, are there, I'm gonna give you a little break. And uh, before we go, are there any questions on, on this, on the whole neuroscience thing or the, uh, the importance of joy and exercises of gratitude? Any questions? Okay, let's take a break. It's 7.08, so let's come back here at 7 if you need a bathroom break or something or stretch your legs, and we'll start at 7.12, okay? Okay, let's get started. Yeah. My granddaughter calls them time burglars phones, but mm-hmm. I was thinking joy burglar. It is, joy burglar, I like that.
hard to work. I like it. Good. <laughs> anyway, I was like, I almost had a question, like, no, I'm not going to ask my question because if I ask that question, it's going to derail your whatever. But you can, I like questions. Well, so, as someone was asking, I said, Gina, weren't you in Bridges Stoop? Yeah. And he said, how long ago was that? It wasn't 15, right? I said, yeah, no, because Brad Actually, and it I, was. Yeah, it was no. 25, wasn't it? 25, because I was wow. Because Brad and I celebrated at 26 mm -hmm. this past summer. So it's like, no. I Okay, take your seats. We'll finish up here where I have one more important topic. Cantor for okay. about 25 years, so I know the area. Yeah, nice to meet that's you. That's a place, good place to walk. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we're filling up our gas tank even there with the, your interactions with each other. You're filling up your joy tanks. This is great. So joy actually has a counterbalance. God designed for a, for a healthy, secure attachment with people. It requires a balance of two things, building joy and giving people rest in space. We need both. If I'm always building joy with you, I can wear you out. But if I'm always giving you rest and distance, then your tank drains down. Even in parenting, it's very important to be, you know, in the, even in the life of an, in, of an infant, an infant's brain is really built through joyful interactions with the mother. They call this climbing joy mountain. You know, the, the baby looks up to the mom, and the mom looks at the baby, and the, and the mom's eyes light up. Mom's joy goes, the baby's joy goes up, and then the baby's eyes light up to mommy, and the baby's joy goes up, and mommy and jo baby do joy mountain, Right? But Joy Mountain gets to a point where actually the joy is physically uncomfortable for the baby. And the baby will actually break eye contact. And if the mother is attuned properly, the, the mother actually lets the baby break on, gives the baby some space and some rest. A lot of times the baby only needs 30 seconds. And then the baby will come right back. And the face will light up. And the mom's face will light up. The baby, mom, baby, mom. Joy Mountain, and then break, break contact again. Get some rest. The rest, you can only build as much joy as you allow yourself to rest in order to kind of absorb it and get your breath. And so this is called the element, the main elements of what we call a secure relationship, a secure, healthy attachment. It's, it's really the Christ-like love we see. We see this with God and how he ha handles his interactions with us, that God, will, God is always with us and delights with us, but God also gives us space. God lets us, lets us rest. And he's very attuned to when we need some joy and when we need some rest. Okay, it's literally the thing that fills in our brains when we're infants. The mother is essentially downloading her brain to her child through her eyes and joyful interactions. The first time I heard that, my mind was blown. Anybody heard that before? This is all new to me too when I learned it. 
But we, never, we don't stop needing joyful interactions even as adults. It's key to, to emotional and health and, and then the, the allowing to rest, okay? Many of us have a hard time resting and quieting ourselves. But it's the other half of, of, of building joy. Our joy will not be able to be kind of absorbed unless we have a good healthy amount as well as rest. Sometimes we need little bits of joy, little bits of rest. Sometimes we need a lot of joy and then a lot of rest. But we learn to listen to our bodies of when we need meet both, okay? So we're, that's what I'm taking you through today is the two main foundations that for everything else is built on. If your life is built on a secure attachment, which means a healthy balance of joy and rest, you're, you're, it's like building a really, really solid foundation to build a bunch of other stuff on top of, okay? So now let's talk about quiet if you go to the next slide, okay? Quiet is very simply the inability to calm ourselves the ability to rest, the ability to give us some space alone or in some silence. And it actually, as it says there, it helps lower my own energy level so that I can rest after both joyful and upsetting emotions. So we need to learn how to quiet ourselves from joyful emotions so that we can absorb it and get some rest before we do, do, are interacting with joy again. But we also need to learn how to quiet ourselves from big, uh, big emotions. Stress, fear, anger right? Disgust, sadness. We need to learn how to quiet ourselves in those emotions. Uh, the second point says this, the ability to quiet myself is the strongest predictor of mental health. In other words, most of the big uh, mental health issues involve an inability to quiet oneself. And what we're doing from like the chemical, the hormonal level, as we're, we're actually training ourselves to release Serotonin on demand. Serotonin is the calming hormone that makes us feel peace. One of them said they felt peace. That's kind of a, a re, the, what, is, what we were experiencing was a release of serotonin, which will often happen with these exercises. And then the good news, like it says, is we can actually learn this. This is not personality. This is actually skills we can learn. Okay. So this is another indirect way of changing our character, and it's one of the areas that's been left out of a lot of our Christian practice, along with joy, and the importance of joy is, is the ability to calm ourselves and rest. And this, this, these exercises of calming, I'm going to share a few of them with you, uh, really deactivate our stress response in life. And who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want to be in the middle of a stressful meeting or a stressful interaction with someone and be able to calm yourself in the moment and kind of come back into your skin and come back to yourself? And actually, feel, calming actually helps us feel God's presence as well. A lot of quieting is, is, is actually getting rid of background noise so that we can, we can sense the small, still, small voice of God. From the science level, we're lowering our cortisol, which is the stress hormone, and we're boosting our serotonin. And the more you do these quieting exercises, especially when you do them apart from stressful situations, like I do these every morning. I do five minutes of joy using a memory. I have a memory, gratitude, memory list. You have, each of you have your gratitude, one item on your gratitude list from, the, from today. And you can start adding great, grateful memories in, in their little titles. And I do five minutes of nonverbal gratitude every morning using this list. Sometimes I need two or three memories to maintain it for five minutes. And, uh, and you can start doing that. Every morning I do five minutes of gratitude and then I do three minutes of, of quiet 
where I'll do some of these exercises I've, I've, uh, I'm going to share with you, and then I just sit in silence and I just enjoy God's presence, but without words, but even without thoughts, just enjoying God's presence. Some of these uh, quieting exercises are kind of weird. And you can't really do it in the middle of a problem, like if you're in a meeting or something. But they're good to do regularly, even when you're not stressed, because it's actually training your body. Your body responds. The more you do it, your, body re- your brain actually remembers how to calm itself, so that later, when you're in the stressful situation, you can do it. It's very similar to sports or music. You know, you don't, you don't learn how to play the piano in a big concert in front of everybody, right? Instead, you're in your home, and you do all these exercises over and over again, and then in the stressful situation, your fingers know what to do. Or in, a, in sports too, right? If you're playing tennis, you, serve, you, know, you practice your serve over and over again for an hour, and then in the stressful situation of a match, you've done it hundreds and hundreds of times, you can do it. Well, quiet and joy building joy, but especially quiet is very, very, very much the same. When we practice it just as, as a daily practice, you're training your brain to be able to quiet yourself in the difficult times when normally we couldn't quiet ourselves. Is there anybody who doesn't want that ability? You know, I can't imagine it. This helps us also, quieting ourselves helps us sense God's attunement. Remember what I said what attunement is? It's when I, I can tell what's going on in you, and I treat that tenderly. Well, God as well, sensing God attuning to us, like God gets what's going on with me right now in this situation. And so a lot of times, uh, we need to quiet ourselves in order to sense that attunement. Attunement's very, very important to our brain. So quiet also helps us get our relational brain back. A lot of times we go non-relational in big emotions and in distress, and quieting ourselves helps us come back and be relational. And we'll talk about that more the next time we meet. One of the things that happens, most of these involve deep breathing, different forms of deep breathing, because when we're in stress, the first thing we start doing is breathing shallowly. And when you breathe shallow, you're actually spiraling and increasing your stress because you're going into oxygen starvation, slight, and that actually bumps your your cortisol up and you're kind of amplifying your stress. And so being able to calm ourselves is very highly correlated emotional health and a lot of that has to do with learning how to breathe and deeply and to calm ourselves. And these have have been tested out scientifically as well, so um, I have a video of of a really good example of an older brother calming his younger brother. Okay, why don't you play this video? He says, breathe. Okay. You know what that's called? Good parenting, because he didn't learn that himself, okay? What was that little kid doing when his, his stress was starting to amplify? He's going, <laughs> he's like that. You could almost sense him breathing shallow. What does his brother do? Breathe. His brother took two or three breaths, and all of a sudden, he was calm, okay? Um, Shallow breathing increases stress, and so we do the opposite. Breathing is very, very important. A deep breath is really healthy for your brain, okay? 
So let's go to the next slide. And this is, we like to we do, in combination with these breathing exercises, we like to quote Psalm 56.3. And so some of the high energy emotions are the things we need to calm, like anger, a fear, afraid, angry, and excited. Those are high energy emotions. Sometimes those are the things we need to calm. So let's say I'm angry right now and I can do a quieting thing. I can also quote, whenever I am angry, I will trust in you, O Lord. Now, Psalm 56.3, this is David saying, what he says is, whenever I'm afraid, I will trust in you, O Lord. And so that's kind of, say that I like to say that scripture as we do some of this calming. Okay, let's, so we can do it. For this one, we'll do it. We'll use afraid. So, so why don't we all say together, whenever I'm afraid, I will trust in you, O Lord. Okay, so everybody stand up. We're going to try out a few of these. Let's just do a big inhale, and then on exhale, let's quote Psalm 56.3. Are you ready? Whenever I'm afraid, I will trust in you, O Lord. Now listen to your body. What's your body feel like just doing that? I already feel some calmness just from that. Believe it or not, an inhale is actually a stress increaser, and an exhale is a calmer. So a lot of what we're doing is, is you're ramping it up and then you're calming it. That's a good way to calm yourself down. It's kind of like when your car idle is stuck high, you know, it's idling too high. What do we do? We stamp on the gas and it goes, and then it starts idling the normal, right? So this breathing in and doing some things, we're actually amping ourselves up and then we calm it and then it gets us back, our idle running at the right calm space, okay? So here's one of them. We have a, uh, our, our uh, nervous system, there's a, there is a nerve called the vagus nerve that comes kind of close to the, your skin underneath your collarbone. It's kind of the thing, there's, a, there's like a high energy and low energy branch of it, but what you're doing is we tap on, on the inhale. That's amping you up and then massage on exhale. Okay. Now let's do it again, and on inhale, we'll tap, and on exhale, massage, and we'll also quote Psalm 56.3. Okay? Just follow me. Whenever I'm afraid, I will trust in you, O Lord. And shake it out. Let's do it again. Whenever I'm afraid... I will trust in you, O Lord. Can you feel something? Kind of the peace. Feels good. Another one is called the Mora reflex. It's the baby startle reflex, okay? And it's very much an amper, amp, amping up and then a quiet. So the baby, baby startle reflex is this. <gasps> okay? So what we're going to do is go... <gasps> When I'm afraid, I will trust in you, O Lord. Let's do it again. <gasps> when I'm afraid, I will trust in you, O Lord. Shake it up. One more time. <gasps> when I'm afraid, I will trust in you, O Lord. Now, if you're in a stressful meeting, you can't start tapping yourself or going, <gasps> right? <laughs> There are more when you're home. Have a seat. 
or when you're, uh, and just for your daily practice, like I'll do one of these every morning when I do my quiet. I'll do it two or three times, and then I'll just sit in quiet, and then after a couple minutes of quiet, then I'll go into gratitude, okay? Um, like we, we want to do these, stress, these quieting exercises away from stress, fr- stressful situations so that in stressful situations, we've already trained ourselves how to handle it, okay, under pressure. You cannot learn this in the stressful situation. It doesn't really work that way, okay? The one thing you always can do in a meeting or in, in front of a camera or something when you can feel the stress is going up is you can always take a deep breath And that will calm you. A lot of times if I haven't spoken in front of people in a while, I'll kind of my heart will start beating before, like when I'm sitting there to come up and just one quick breath all the way in and one quick breath out. I was teaching these to a choir teacher at Fairview, a young man who wanted me to mentor him. And, uh, and I was teaching him some of these quieting things. And in his job, he noticed that some of his students would get really nervous before a choir recital. And so he started teaching them the tapping, an inhale and an exhaling before a concert recital, and it would calm him down. And he said it got to be to the point where he'd be walking down the halls of Fairview and he'd see these young girls going into a test, <sighs> calming themselves down. And I thought, wow, that is great. It's like contagious. It's like yeast. It's spreading. Okay? But again, I did the same thing that I did for Joy is I started looking through the Bible on examples of the importance of quieting. If you go to the next slide, and I found it everywhere, but especially, you know, the person who I learned it from and found it from in the Bible is King David. King David talks about quieting himself all the time. And was there ever a person who needed and had practice, needed to practice quieting himself? I mean, that king had a stressful life. One of my favorites is Psalm 37, 7, where David says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. So what we're, what we're not espousing here is like a Buddhist quietness where you just go into nothingness. Um, we're very much quieting ourselves in God's presence. Like he says, be still before the Lord. Okay. So we're lowering our background noise using some of these quietness, quieting things and sitting in quiet and just enjoying his presence. Without even thoughts, just enjoying that he's with me. Isaiah 30.15 is a very classic and very important verse of scripture where the, where the prophet Isaiah said, in quietness and trust be your strength. Now you think of God giving you strength, what normally comes to our mind? Something energetic, right? Power, give me power, give me strength. And then God says, in quietness and trust will be your strength. Because when we can calm ourselves from stress, from fear, from anger, that actually gives us strength to stay ourselves in big situations where normally we might lose ourselves and act, stop acting like ourselves. And then a classic one, I really this whole psalm, Psalm 131, is about this topic where David says, but I've calmed and quieted myself. This is after he says, I don't, I don't worry about things that are too big for me, that are too hard to grasp. But he said, I'm calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with, his, with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. 
So this is something that David actually learned. Okay? He learned to calm himself and quiet himself. And that's what we can do as well. He's very much our, our, uh, our example, the person we can look through to be an example. And so these, again, these, quiet, these, these two practices are practices we've largely lost in the church for many hundred years, but it's now slowly starting to come back and be, and be seeing for the importance it have. In your lessons in these next few weeks, you're, you'll be taking the groups, will be going through some of, these, some of this theory and some of these practices. Um, not all of the group members are here, so I encourage you to even kind of be leaders in your group as you go through the curriculum and doing some of these with your people. And, uh, and also, I encourage you to start doing them yourselves in your private devotion. Adam, I actually add it to my quiet time. I still get up, I have a quiet time, I read the Bible, I pray, but I start out first by quieting myself, and then by going into some gratitude, and then I open the Bible and read. And I've actually put my brain in a really good state to be sensing the presence of God as I read his word. Have you ever sometimes gotten up in the morning and you know, gotten your coffee or however you do it, you open your Bible and it's almost like the words of scripture are leaping off into the depths of your soul like God is speaking to you? And then it could be a day later you, I wake up and I open my Bible and it's just kind of dead ink on a page. My brain just can't go there. Right? A lot of times those mysteries of our, of our variable spirituality, you might call it, really have to do with we've had some really big emotions in the last 24 hours and have not been able to calm ourselves. Or maybe something difficult relationally happened and our joy started draining low. So adding quiet and then joy to our devotional life is actually making sure we're fueled up with joy and that we've calmed the background noise and so that we can actually feel that God, you know, we can feel God's presence in his still small voice. Okay? He's always there. We don't lose God, but we lose our ability to, to experience that. Okay? So are there any questions? This is, I'm done for tonight. Are there any questions about where we're going for the next three lessons or about any of this joy and quiet and gratitude? Yes, question. Yes. Excellent question, excellent question. So, a lot of times, the character-forming areas of our life are, character, are areas that require a joy tank that's filling up and also requires us to calm our, the background noise in, or, in order for us, us even to access some of those areas. And we're gonna talk about this more in the future. But when our joy is low, again, that's not unhappiness. That means we're alone in our situation, that people aren't, aren't attuning to us, or we can't feel that God is attuning to us. So we're alone in our pain. Our brain goes into a, a very difficult state for us to, to build our character and to grow. However, in our good times and difficult times, if we stay, are able to stay attuned to God and to God attuning to us and attuning to each other, so there's people even in hard times that are with us you're actually keeping, even in distress, you're keeping your joy levels high. When joy is low, pretty much nothing works well in our brain, in our lives. So this is really like, you know, I teach you to, like if transformation is me teaching you to drive a car, well, the first thing you do in a car is you make sure it has gas in the tank. 
It's not the only thing you do. And we're going to go some other places, but those other places aren't going to work very well if we're not doing some joy building and learning how to quiet ourselves. Does that make sense? So this is very much like the foundational thing that we build, everything else we build on top of. Great question. Yes. No, it's not a book study. The book will help you, but I'm taking it slower for people. I'm not assuming people are going to read the book. And so I'm going to bring scriptures in and just kind of get the conversation started. I hope is as you do this, people will go, I want some more of this than just in the lesson, and then, then they can read the book. And that will inform. As people start reading the book, it'll inform the groups as well, I hope. But we don't want to make that a requirement because maybe they don't want to read it, and that's fine. So... Any other questions? Okay, well, I encourage you then to start to use some of these as, as a daily practice. And I'd love when we get back in a month to hear some feedback. Like, how is your joy building go, going? And how is your quieting going? And I love especially even negative exercises. Like, I could not calm myself down. I was so angry and I tried doing this and they didn't work. Those are actually the kinds of conversations we need to have in church when we couldn't do it. Or I felt so alone in this meeting, I felt so alone, I, I felt like God was nowhere in the room. Ooh, you lost your connection with God. Oh good, let's talk about that. Let's kind of debug that together and figure out what we can do, what we can learn, right? I actually think in church, one of the things we should do is say, okay, who in the last week lost their connection with Jesus? Oh, I did. It happened at, at, uh, when my boss got mad at me about this thing. Okay, does anybody, let's, let's listen to God for this person. Hmm. And this is just part of our, you know, part of what we do in church is helping us stay connected to Jesus and everything, okay? But we need to be intentional. It's not just magic. There's actually work we have to do, and we also need God, God's help. It's both. He works with us as we do our part, okay? Yes, question. Yes. Yeah, how do, we, how do we know what emotions we're feeling? Primarily, we feel that in our bodies. But if, in, in what, which side of our brain governs the, our connection, our sense of connection to our bodies? That's our right brain, the relational brain. And if we've lost connection with our emotions, a lot of times it's because our joy is low, and that, or we have such, such a hamster wheel going on in our brain that we can't calm down that we there's just too much background noise, okay? So the first step to actually feeling and knowing our feelings is to start building joy and calming ourselves and getting used to that. And then the funny thing is, as you start to build joy, oftentimes um, you'll start to be a, more aware of some trauma you've had because you're actually putting these connections together and you're starting to feel real feelings again. 
And so we believe that trauma, helping people with trauma and building joy and doing this other stuff need to go hand in hand. Because sometimes as we build joy, then we'll be aware of some trauma that we need to heal. And then, then we get back into joy. And so these, these are things, we don't go looking for trauma, but when we start doing these kinds of exercises, trauma may percol up and percolate up in some people. And so we need to be ready. And we're going to go into how we handle trauma um, according to way, the way God designed the brain and what trauma looks like in the brain. And it's super fascinating stuff. I just went on a four-day fishing trip with friends, and I had to heal some, my own trauma with Jesus and my friends. In the middle, it just popped up, and this, I could feel something was going wrong. And then so we went through this stuff and was able to, you know, a lot of what we need in trauma to heal trauma is the attunement thing. You lose attunement in suffering. That's what sets up a trauma situation. So getting back and healing trauma, healing trauma doesn't mean it doesn't, doesn't hurt anymore. It means that you can stay connected and relational, and you stay yourself. In the, in the suffering. And that depends on attunement. Attunement's really the area of your brain that we need to exercise, and that's where one of the places we're going. So, great question. You're getting out ahead of me, which is good. It means there's excitement in this room. <laughs> Any other questions? Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you so much that, uh, that you delight in us that you take great delight in us and that you, you quiet us with your love and you rejoice over us with singing, that you are a Father whose face is shining on us. And so we pray as we go and as everyone does these, these practices and starts learning how to receive this, your shining face of delight, we pray that we would feel that more and more and that our faces as well, you would shine through us to other people and people would walk into, into Grace Commons and say, wow, something is going on here. And that they would feel the effects of joy even just walking into this church and seeing the people here. May it be contagious, Lord, and may you do a wonderful work this year. And we ask this all in your son's name. Amen. Thank you very much. We do have copies of the book if you need. Go I think Ash has some copies of the book if you need them. If you're interested.